All that I know of tomorrow is that providence will rise before the sun. So this phrase attributed to Henri Dominique Lacordaire, the French Dominican preacher, the 19th century. But like many famous quotations, it may be something that the author never said. I tried to track it down, consulted notable historians in my province, but with no success. But you find it all over the internet, so it's got to be true. We can put it along with other famous quotations that people never said. I think of the memorable one of Teresa Avila, um, who said, the love of God and chocolate is better than the love of God alone. So, well, I first came across this uh, phrase of La Cordier's during my novitiate year in the Dominicans in 1970. And you may remember that way back then, uh, we were still in the age of liturgical banners. I think that's passed us by now. The, there was a banner in the novice rec room, and there was a quote on it. It had a sunburst and the word superimposed. All I know of tomorrow is that providence will rise before the sun. So I found those words a great comfort during that first year in the order, as tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, crept in their petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of the novice master's conferences. The words seemed to say that whatever tomorrow might bring, God would be there first, that the world could never outpace God's providential care, that God's wisdom and love permeate the cosmos. As the Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote, the world is charged with the grandeur of God, Or as St. Teresa of Avila says, uh, reflect upon the providence and wisdom of God in all created things. And Mother Teresa of Calcutta says, turn to Jesus with great trust and allow yourself to be loved by him. The past belongs to his mercy, the future to his providence, and the present to his love. God's present in times of sorrow as well as times of joy. The poet William Blake reminds us of this. He writes, Think not thou can sigh a sigh, and thy maker is not by. Think not thou canst weep a tear, and thy maker is not near. And kind of grounding all of these witnesses, we have the words of the psalm. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The firmament shows forth the work of his hands. Aquinas' name for this loving presence of God is providence. And providence pervades the world that science studies, and it breathes with us in our prayer. As St. Paul says, we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. So this morning we'll look at providence in relationship to prayer and science. We'll see how conflicts and misunderstandings arose with the advent of modern science, and some of those are still with us. We'll also see how the discoveries of contemporary science may offer resources to resolve some of this. So, providence. The book of Genesis tells us that God created all things and found them very good. Aquinas points out that in created things, good is found not only as regards their being, but also as regards their order towards their last end which is the divine goodness. Providence is simply that plan of the order of all things to their end. 
It has two aspects. Aquinas says two things pertain to the care of providence, namely the reason of order, which is itself called providence, and the execution of that order, which is called government. Since God is the creator of all things, his causality extends to all being. In such a way, Aquinas says that all things that exist in whatever manner are necessarily directed by God towards some end. All things that exist are subject to divine providence. For Aquinas, the deist option in which God creates the world and then leaves it to run on its own is simply something that makes no sense. The act of creation and the continued existence of things demands the continued presence and direction of God. Providential, God's providential care must embrace all times and all places. And through providence, God acts in the world. To speak of providence, therefore, we have to have a language of action, and that means a language of causality. Aquinas found such a language in Aristotle's philosophy with this nuanced teaching about material, formal, efficient, and final causes that we've been talking about this week, but also the causality of chance, which for Aristotle was another category of causality. That teaching was compromised in the wake of modern science, and our ability to talk about God's providence was diminished. The discoveries of contemporary science, however, have again broadened the notion of causality, opening new avenues to speak of God's providential care. So we'll trace some of that history and try to see its implications for providence and prayer. So we go to modern science and scientism. Science employs a quantitative method, studying the world through the lens of mathematics. Now that's a powerful tool. It's brought us all our advances in technology and medicine and so on. But it does leave something out. In fact, it leaves out everything that can't be measured. That's illustrated in the old inchworm song, if you remember it. Um, I'll spare you this morning. I won't sing it for you. But inchworm, inchworm, measuring the marigolds. You and your arithmetic, you'll probably go far. Inchworm, inchworm, measuring the marigolds, seems to me you'd stop and see how beautiful they are. Measurement can tell us quite a bit about the world, but it does leave some things out, like beauty. Now, it's one thing to study the world by measurement. It's quite another to say that what's not measurable is not real. But that's what happened with the coming of modern science. The method of science, which rightly ignores what's not measurable, became a metaphysics. What's not measurable became not just irrelevant, but unreal. It was assumed that what couldn't be measured simply could not exist. The result was not science, but what we might call scientism. Things were different in Aristotle's world. Reality wasn't limited to the quantifiable. Qualities, such as color, were just as real as quantities. You might say that Aristotle lived in a WYSIWYG world. What you see is what you get. Qualities, such as color, were real properties of things, and our senses could really perceive them. We get a sense or a glimpse of his world in an old nursery rhyme, I'm sure you remember. Roses are red, 
Violets are blue. Sugar is sweet, and so are you. Unmeasurable qualities were real, and so were unmeasurable causes, such as purpose and potency and form. We might consider purpose for a moment. If you've ever gone to the kitchen to get a snack, you know all about purpose. Your purpose is to get something to eat. That purpose explains why you're in the kitchen. It's a final cause. But that purpose isn't something that you could measure. It's not something you could put a yardstick up next to. Yet in some way, your purpose is truly the cause of your going to the kitchen. Aristotle saw purpose as a real mode of causality, and he found it everywhere in the natural world. The same was true of other causes that can't be measured, such as the material cause, understood as the mere possibility of being something, and formal cause, understood as the principle by which a thing is what it is. We'll get back to those in a moment. What about qualities in modern times? The world of modern science was quite different from Aristotle's. Since quality couldn't be measured, it began to seem less real than quantity. Newton's quantitative study of the natural world eventually led to a redefinition of qualities in terms of quantity. The quality of color, for instance, was redefined as something measurable, a certain frequency of light. So red is simply electromagnetic radiation with a wavelength of about 650 nanometers. Newton followed Galileo in considering quantities, such as frequencies of light, to be real aspects of the world, while qualities, like color, were simply products of our subjective mode of perception. The world really does have frequencies of energy, but energy itself has no color. Color is just the subjective experience that the energy produces in us. So color is redefined quantitatively and disappears as a qualitative aspect of things. That might require a slight adjustment to our nursery rhyme. New version might go like this. Roses aren't red, really, and violets aren't blue. Sugar's not sweet, and neither, I suppose. <laughs> We've somehow learned to live in a world without red roses and blue violets, since they still look red and blue to us, however science might describe them. Colors, however, weren't the only thing that disappeared in the aftermath of science. We can also look at causes. Aristotle's causes disappeared. When Newtonian science looked at the world, it considered only what is measurable in accordance with the limits of its quantitative method. So rightly enough, it paid no attention to final causality or purpose. Following on its heels, however, scientism declared that only the measurable is real. Purpose wasn't measurable, so purpose was not real. Ultimately, the only real causes were the measurable forces that moved the atoms. Look at consciousness. Colors and causes weren't the only casualties of scientism. In a world that consists entirely of forces and atoms, human consciousness becomes a conundrum. As philosopher John Searle says, we have a conception of ourselves as conscious, rational agents. 
How can we square this self-conception of ourselves with a universe that consists entirely of mindless, meaningless, unfree, non-rational, brute, physical particles? If only the measurable is real, and that measurable reality is ultimately only atoms in the void, then our consciousness itself must also be, in some ways, an illusion. As our perception of color is merely a quirk of the way our nervous system reacts to electromagnetic radiation, so our consciousness is just a quirk of the chemical and electrical activity in the neurons in our brain. So we, you and I, are no longer real, unless we're willing to redefine ourselves quantitatively as simply an assemblage of neurons, a collection of brute physical particles. The neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux seems happy to do that and so proclaims, you are your synapses. They are who you are. As David Bentley Hart remarks, today it is casually assumed by a pretty healthy majority of cognitive scientists that the conscious mind really is nothing but a mechanical material function of the brain. Now, while we may be able to live in a world without color and even get used to a world without Aristotle's causes, it's hard to see how we can live in a world without us. But the implications of scientism go further beyond human consciousness. If only the measurable is real, then the whole spiritual realm, including God, angels, and souls, must be unreal since those things are certainly not measurable. Even if we posit a God, how could it, he, God could not really act in the world since all that happens in the world is presumably accounted for by the quantifiable laws of science. As Albert Einstein once remarked, the more man is imbued with an ordered, the more man is imbued with the ordered regularity of all events, the firmer becomes his conviction that there is no room left by the side of this ordered regularity for causes of a different nature. For him, neither the rule of human nor the rule of divine will exists as an independent cause of natural events. But if God can't act in the world, how can God answer prayers, much less achieve his providential plan? So I think we need to take a second look at scientism. I first stumbled across it in a scripture course I took as an undergraduate. The professor didn't mention the word. He simply explained that the biblical miracles, such as the plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, could all be explained as natural events. So the Red Sea didn't really divide in two, a la Cecil B. DeMille. Instead, there was simply a strong wind that blew one evening across the shallow waters of the Reed Sea, moving them aside and allowing the Israelites to pass. The Israelites merely interpreted this natural event as an act of God. Now, I remember way back when, walking home from church one morning with my younger brother and kind of explaining my new wisdom, I happily concluded that we didn't need supernatural uh, explanations for such things. Natural explanations were enough. And his response was something like, how come? 
Well, cop me up short. You do really hate it when your little brother says something sensible, especially when you're in the midst of your own pontifications. But in any case, it stuck with me. How come? How come we'd shy away from miracles? How come we'd be so eager to look for natural explanation? What was behind that tendency, so pervasive in my early college education, to reinterpret the miracles of scripture as natural events? I didn't know back then, but I've discovered something since, and it has to do with the way science, or scientism, has influenced theology, especially the way we talk about God's action in the world. By assuming that only the measurable is real, and thereby limiting the notion of causality itself to what's measurable, scientism also limits the ways we have to talk about God's causality or God's action. As Keith Ward says, the scientific worldview seems to leave no room for God to act, since everything that happens is determined by the laws of science. Or as Rudolf Bultmann put it, it is impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. According to Bultzmann, all language about miracles is simply myth and needs to be demythologized if religion is to make sense in the modern world. Such demythologizing involves substituting a natural cause for the divine cause. It was this tendency towards demythologizing, but I didn't know it back then, that lay behind the interpretations of scripture I was getting in my early college education. So what happens with contemporary science and divine action? Things change somewhat with the advent of contemporary science. In contrast to the deterministic world of Newtonian physics, contemporary science has again found a place for spontaneity and broader notions of causality. Quantum physics posits an objective indeterminacy at the most fundamental level of the physical world. And Werner Heisenberg explicitly notes a resemblance between quantum indeterminacy and Aristotle's primary matter. Now here's my little first aside on prime matter. What is it, Aristotle's material cause? Well, it's not something and it's not nothing. So what else is there? Not something, not nothing. It's the mere possibility of being something. And every substance, everything you come across in the world involves a composition between the possibility, the principle of possibility of being something, and a second principle, form, substantial form, to make it to be what it is. So a dog has substantial form by which it is a dog, but it also has primary matter, that principle of possibility by which it could be. It has the possibility of being something else, like a dead dog or a carcass or whatever a dog turns into when it ceases to be a dog. Um, what happens when something changes? You have every substance has prime matter and substantial form, 
And in virtue of that form, every substance acts on other substances. And as substances act on one another, the primary matter in the substance that's acted upon may become disposed to a new substantial form. When disposed to a new substantial form, that form is educed from the potency of matter. Sounds very mysterious. But we can look at it in a way, you can't see primary matter in substantial form, but you can see substances. And in some ways, a substance is also a substratum of change when we talk about accidental change. So here we are. I have a flat sheet of paper. Lo and behold, it becomes a round sheet of paper. And the question is, where did the roundness come from? It's something new. Did God step in and make the newness round? I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, I think that this matter, paper, has the potency, possibility of achieving a new shape when acted upon by some agency. So the roundness, you might say, is educed from the potency or possibility of the paper. That'd be an accidental change. More profound is substantial change. The living dog becomes a dead dog. Huh? The primary matter, the possibility of being that was actualized by the form dog is no longer disposed to be actualized by that form. There might be some other agent that caused it to be indisposed to that form. So the little boy gets a puppy. He's happy, happy, happy. And the next day, the puppy runs out in the street, cement roller comes along. The primary matter of the puppy is no longer disposed to be a dog. And so it becomes other substances. It's now disposed to those substantial forms which are then educed from the potency of matter. It's all part of the natural world as understood by hylomorphism. So hydrogen and oxygen become water. Why? Well, I suppose someone's around, some physicist, someone might be doing something, or just into the natural world. However it happens, the primary matter, the principle of potency in each of those substances, is no longer disposed to its present form. It becomes disposed to the form of water, and that form is then educed from the potency of the matter. Or mom and papa lizard. They produce egg and sperm. And those are two substances with substantial form and primary matter. Those substances unite, and the matter of those substances, that possibility of being, is no longer disposed to the form of egg and sperm, but disposed to the form of lizard. And so that form, substantial form, is deduced from the potency of matter. Simple scenario of evolution. Mom and Papa lizard get together again. But along comes by chance a little gamma ray, and boink, touches the DNA, rearranges it a bit, and then the resulting DNA, or the resulting primary matter of egg and sperm is not disposed to be egg and sperm anymore. It's not disposed to be a lizard, but now disposed to be a snake. And so that form is educed from the potency of matter. Um, all of this is part of the way that 
nature works. No special divine action required. Or you have new elements are made in particle accelerators. They knew that there were kind of blank spaces on the periodic table. And they knew that one could create those elements, but they're so unstable, they won't last very long. So one can, though, take two particles, smash them together, and for a moment, the primary matter of each of those particles will no longer be disposed to be that type of particle, but something new, maybe one of those rare elements. And that substantial form will be educed from the potency of matter. Again, no special divine action required. But we're not going to leave God out entirely. We'll get back to him in a moment. Then biology, then, now, embraces final causality, or teleology, as a basic category of explanation. Or at least some biologists think so. Biologist Francisco Ayala, former Dominican, argues that teleological explanation in biology is not only acceptable, but indeed indispensable. Biology requires teleological explanations, final causes. Many areas of contemporary science now embrace the notion of emergence to account for a kind of top-down causality that's evident in certain systems or substances. The causality of the whole arises from the parts of the system, but can't be explained simply in terms of those parts. In such diverse areas of nature as physics, chemistry, and biology, science now recognizes holistic behaviors or top-down causality that can't be explained by the bottom-up causality of reductionism. The presence of such holistic behavior seems to invite a reconsideration of Aristotle's idea of formal cause to account not only for the behavior, but also for the being of the whole. As Terence Deacon remarks, the causal typologies of contemporary science are in many ways a modern reaffirmation of the original Aristotelian insight about categories of causality. As determinism disappears and broader ways of understanding causality emerge in science, the theologian discovers new ways to talk about divine action. Two basic options. Either you can incorporate the new discoveries of science themselves into your theology, or you can make use of the broader notion of causality that's now being suggested. So suppose you make use of the discoveries of science. Some theologians do that. Robert Russell, for instance, who he's the director and founder of the Center for Theology and Natural Sciences in Berkeley. Uh, he uses the indeterminism of quantum mechanics to show how God might act in the world without interfering with natural causes. He says, we can view God as acting in a particular quantum event to produce indirectly a specific event on the macroscopic level one which we call an event of divine providence. Quantum mechanics allows us to think of special divine action without God overriding or intervening in the structure of nature. John Polkinghorn has similarly employed chaos theory to avoid divine interference while opening what he calls room for divine maneuver. John Arthur Peacock has used the analogy of the causality of the whole affirmed by emergence. He argues that God may exert an influence on the whole universe 
without interfering with its parts in the same way that an emergent whole may exert a causal influence on its parts without interference. All such approaches face fundamental problems. First, they're tied to specific theories and, and interpretations of science. So if those interpretations, those theories change, that theology, of course, then collapses. Secondly, such approaches locate God often in a realm of indeterminacy, a kind of built-in gap in the causality of nature where there's room for God to work. Science, though, has a way of filling in those gaps as it advances. The God who acts in them has become known as the God of the gaps, a God whose realm is constantly shrinking before the advance of science. The most basic criticism, though, is that such approaches implicitly assume that God's causality is the same as that of creatures. Only causes of the same type, what we might call univocal causes, can interfere with each other. The whole enterprise of finding a place in the natural world where God can act without interference is therefore founded on an assumption that God is a cause like any other and that God could interfere with the workings of creation. Well, the other option is to look at the new ways of understanding causality. Given the difficulties entailed in these approaches, I think it's better that we use not the discoveries of science, but the new categories of causality. Now, those new categories are very reminiscent of the old categories of Aristotle and Aquinas. So, without divorcing theology from current science, we can again employ final causality and assert that God is the final cause of each creature. Since every creature's action is for the sake of some real or apparent good, and each thing is good only insofar as it participates in a likeness to the supreme good, who is God, it follows, Aquinas says, that God himself is the cause of every operation as its end. As final cause, God is involved in the action of each creature. God doesn't interfere with that action, but is rather its source. The creature wouldn't act at all unless in some way, on some level, it was inclined towards something as a good to be attained through its action. And that good, in turn, is a reflection of divine goodness. With the retrieval of formal causality, we can say that God acts as the formal or exemplar cause of all things in creating and sustaining the universe. And a richer understanding of efficient causality allows us to assert that God is the first efficient cause of all things. In Newtonian science, efficient or agent causality was reduced to the force that moves the atoms. Now we can speak of God in a more profound way, not just as the cause of motion, but the cause of the very being of the creature. And since being is the innermost principle of every creature, God is most intimately present in the world. As Aquinas says, being is innermost in each thing and most fundamentally inherent. Hence, it must be that God is in all things and innermostly. As a cause of being, God is also present in the action of creatures. To explain this, we have to consider primary and secondary causality, as well as principal and instrumental causality. 
So first, instrumental causality. If I use a pen to write words on a page, I'm the principal cause and the pen is my instrument. The words produced on the page are caused entirely by me. There's no word I didn't write, but they're also caused entirely by my pen. There's no mark that the pen didn't make. So there's no division of labor here. The result partly of the pen, partly of me. No, the whole effect is due entirely to both causes. Yet the pen couldn't make a single mark by itself apart from me. It can't make any intelligible marks. It can't write any words apart from my influence. In instrumental causality, the effect is always beyond the capacity of the instrumental cause. But that's not the case with this other way of understanding causality, primary and secondary causality. In this case, the effect is not beyond the capacity of the secondary cause. Even though the secondary cause requires the influence of a primary cause in order to act, I think someone brought up the example yesterday of the orchestra and the conductor, huh? You've got the different uh, musicians in the orchestra, and they're each playing their particular instrument with the skill and talent that they have, you know, by nature, by training, and so on. They're not doing anything beyond their own capacity. Hmm? But they couldn't cause the music of the symphony without the influence of the conductor who's leading the orchestra. So the symphony, the sound produced, belongs entirely to the conductor. The conductor, he or she did it as primary cause and entirely to the musicians as secondary causes. You see that at the end of the symphony. You know? the conductor turns around, maestro turns around, takes a bow to the audience, more bows to the audience, then eventually remembers something, looks back. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, yeah, all you people stand up, and then shakes the hand of the first violinist, and so on. But the audience is applauding for them all. Huh? And the work belongs to all of them, the principal cause, that is to say, the primary cause and the secondary causes. So in some cases, God acts as primary cause, and creatures are secondary causes. God is the ultimate cause of all actuality, and creatures can produce actual effects. They really can do something. They are truly causes, but they can't do it without the influence of God. They're doing something that belongs to them according to their own capacity, but they do that under the divine influence. They're secondary causes. In some cases, God acts as the principal cause and creatures are instrumental causes. So creatures produce being as an effect but that's beyond the capacity of the creatures. In that case, they're only instrumental causes. That's a somewhat controversial point. John Whipple, though, agrees with me. So does Thomas Aquinas, actually. But uh, what about um, parents producing offspring? Well, they're the proper cause of the becoming, of the coming into be of the offspring. So they are truly the parents of the offspring. What did they do? They disposed the primary matter in such a way that a new form was educed from that matter. Their univocal causes, the parent and the offspring, are the same type. So ducks produce ducks. Huh? But 
the parents aren't the proper cause of the form as such in the offspring. Aquinas says that if they were the cause of the form as such, then they would be the cause of themselves, because each one of them is a duck in virtue of having the form duck. So if they cause that form as such, they would be causing themselves, which he says doesn't make any sense. So what is it? You need a cause of a different sort as the ultimate cause of the form. He calls it the non-univocal cause. Parents are univocal causes of the offspring. You need a non-univocal cause. For Aristotle and Aquinas, this was the son. Uh, we could move beyond the son to God, who is the first exemplar cause of all things. So certainly the non-univocal cause. And the parents are then instrumental causes in that sense with respect to their offspring. Now, then Aquinas needs this non-univocal cause, not because he somehow become addicted to medieval cosmology and he likes the sunshine, but because in uh, philosophy of nature itself, a non-univocal cause is needed. So it's not going to be the sun if your science changes and you can't attribute that to the sun anymore. Then you've got to look around and find some other place to locate this non-univocal cause, not out of sentimentality, but out of an ontological need for a cause of that type. Okay, Aquinas says, it's apparent that the same effect is not attributed to the natural cause and the divine power in such a way that it's partly done by God and partly by the natural agent. Rather, it's wholly done by both, but in different ways. God doesn't act in the world as just one more cause or one more force among others. When causes of the same type act together, the effect is always divided in some way among them. So if we had a table over here and two of us were going to move it, if one lifts more weight, there's left for, less for the other to do. The work is divided. The result is a zero-sum game. The more one cause does, the less there is for the other to do. So if God is understood as a univocal cause, same kind as creatures, then God is always in competition with the natural world. The more God does in the world, the less there is for nature to do back and forth. Same with grace and free will. More grace, free will. So if, when you think of God as univocal cause, you make lots of trouble. So why not think of God as a transcendent cause, not just one among others, but the supremely transcendent cause, ultimate source of the being and goodness and actions of things, God's action doesn't diminish the contingency and freedom of creature, it's rather its source. God acts in and through the nature of each creature without meddling or interfering, God, since God is the very source of that nature. But God can also act in the world in ways that go beyond the causality of creatures. God can perform miracles. Even in such events, however, God doesn't act in such a way as to disturb the fundamental world order, since the most profound order of the world is its ordering towards God. And in performing miracles, God is ordering things once again towards himself. Okay, prayer and providence. We said providence is the plan of the order of all things towards God, and our prayers are part of that plan. We can say that as God acts through all things, he also acts through our prayers. 
And that can happen, if you like, inwardly and outwardly. God is the source of joy that we find inwardly in our contemplative prayer. Outwardly, through our prayer of petition, we become God's instruments in the achievement of God's providence. Our prayers are themselves, in some ways, secondary causes through which God, as the primary cause, achieves his purpose. So Aquinas says, The cause of some things that are done by God is prayers and holy desires. For divine providence does not exclude other causes, rather it orders them, so that the order which providence has determined within itself may be imposed on things, and thus secondary causes are not incompatible with providence. Instead, they carry out the effect of providence. In this way, then, prayers are efficacious before God, yet they do not destroy the immutable order of divine providence, because this individual request that is granted to a certain petitioner falls under the order of divine providence. So it is the same thing to say that we should not pray in order to obtain something from God, because the order of his providence is immutable, as to say that we should not walk in order to get to a place, or we should not eat in order to be nourished, all of which is clearly absurd. Our prayers are part of God's plan, and we're instruments in its achievement. God can act through us in all that we do and all that we are. So Mother Teresa of Calcutta says, God's love, God loves the world through us, you and me. It is his love in action through us. And our Dominican Father Leo Thomas writes, We have not begun to realize the dignity that is ours, a dignity that carries a very remarkable responsibility. Our eyes are the eyes that God uses to weep for the pain of the world. Our emotions are the emotions God uses to have compassion on his people. Our hands are the hands God uses to bestow his blessings upon those in need. If we do not weep, some people will never know God cares. If we do not lay our hands on others in a gesture of acceptance, some will never experience healing in this world. We have the ability to let God use us to build up his kingdom. We also have the freedom to refuse and thus hinder the coming of God's kingdom. This is the mystery of the incarnation. God will establish his presence in the world through the weakness and limitations of sinful humanity. God's providential love is present and active in the world. Perhaps more surprising, it acts through us. So we have reason to affirm with Lacordaire, all I know of tomorrow is that providence will rise before the sun. And if you'll let me give the last word to a Jesuit, we have reason to rejoice that God is with us now and to hope for his presence tomorrow. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil, crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, 
and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And yet, for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the last lights of the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and ah, bright wings. You know, that would be a, uh, an interesting thing. I hadn't thought of it before. A, a non-univocal cause is simply a cause of a different type. And generally, in Aquinas' philosophy of nature, understood to be of a higher sort, you know. So the, the, the parents can't produce or can't um, be the cause of the form of, as such of their own species. So some other cause. So um, a transcendent non-univocal cause. Now, could that be a gamma ray? Well, I, I'd be disinclined to put the gamma ray in that position uh, because it's so transient itself. Uh, I would think the gamma ray would be one of those chance causes. And in evolution, however you parse it out, you have a kind of a, a, a lawful order of things and then you have spontaneity or chance, generally understood as the change in the uh, mutation of the DNA, which then can give rise to a new species. So that the gamma ray I'd put in there as an element of that chance occurrence, but not as a non-univocal cause as such. Oh, you're asking questions? Go ahead, Dr. Carroll. Yes, second. Uh, thank you, Father Don. Uh, when you say that modern contemporary science uh, is useful here, uh, not because of questions of indeterminacy, but because of a, an expanded notion of causality vis-a-vis -vis classical science, and it looks a bit similar to what Aristotle has to say. I wonder, however, that the causality that this, this enhanced notion of causality of contemporary science is embedded in concepts of what it means to be a cause which tend to be epistemological rather than metaphysical, yes. number one, and which are also 
heirs in various ways to, to David Hume and so forth. So when we talk about these enhanced notions of causality of contemporary science, uh, enhanced, yes, vis-a-vis -vis classical science, but still, from our Aristotelian and Thomistic view, still troublingly confused, yes. or, or at the very least, very different mm -hmm. from what Aristotle and Thomas mean by cause, precisely because there are analyses in epistemology and epistemology rather than the notion of metaphysical dependence. So that kind of problem has to be dealt with in important ways. Right, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. That What's fascinating to me is that these words of Aristotle are reappearing, you know? People are talking again about the form and need to talk about the form. Well, they didn't need to talk about that at all in Newtonian science, or, you know? It, it was simply efficient causes and matter, and that accounted for everything. So I'm not saying that they're um, retrieving Aristotelian causality as such. I'm finding consonances, resonances, hints, Something. I think it's because the kind of question science asks or the kinds of discoveries it makes, um, looking at things holistically rather than reductionistically and seeing that the reductionistic pattern of discovery that's been so effective uh, has limits in its power to explain. So I think it's a dilemma then for science when it invokes something like emergence to say, aha, now I can talk about the whole. Well, then say, what is the whole? What's just what emerged from the parts? Well, what is it other than the parts? Well, hard to say. You need a principle to make the whole to be a whole, something like Aristotle's substantial form. So that's where I see the bent towards Aristotle. Uh, I, would, I agree with you. No, you don't find Aristotelian causes in contemporary science as such. Dr. Gunin. Um, no, I was just going to be a spoiler and say that no gamma rays produced in the interior of the sun make it into space. Oh, that's okay, that's good to know. I won't worry about them anymore. There are gamma rays from other places in the cosmos, but um, no, that's good enough for now. Okay. So what we heard mostly, I think, about today is how Thomas, Tyne, scientists are being influenced by his science when developing his theology and metaphysics, how that can be sort of stumble blocks. But I was wondering if how much of it was actually a positive thing. Mm -hmm. like, I mean, how much of his theology would we not have if he was not so caring so much, I guess, about the particular science of his time? Oh, yes. Like, challenging the, that we should be very worried about using particular science to advance theology? No, no, I think that he understood his whole philosophy of metaphysics to be derived from, originally, experience of particulars, and coming out of the science that deals with those particular things, you know? So there is the kind of, they didn't have our sense of empirical science, but they did study individual things, like heavy things that went down, or light things that went up. So that was a way of getting at the nature of things, using the science of that day. Same with astronomy and so on. So in no way would Aquinas want to kick aside these particular modes of inquiry. He wants to use them, but then move in ways that allow one to ask questions that go beyond the, the particular. Huh? Um, not just why does a stone fall, but 
Why does anything behave the way it does? Well, this gets you a step on, not just to the behavior of the stone, important as it is, but why does anything do it? Well, there must be something in each thing. What would you call it? Nature or something? As a principle of activity. You find it in the stone, but you find it in the dog, and so on. So a more, a broader way of talking about things, but certainly always springing out of the particular sciences. So I'd agree, you know, I don't think he could do what he did if he didn't just adopt Aristotle's particular sciences, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, And for him, it certainly wasn't the stumbling block. We look back at it and say, well, now we've got to sort out his physics from that old, his metaphysics from that old physics he had and see that as a trial for us to go through and try to do, but it was no way a trial for him. It was part and parcel of the whole enterprise. Father Dodds, I was wondering if you could say a word uh, in clarification about um, the the different ways in which God has caused between, for example, the creation of the human soul um, versus the two lizards that make another lizard or something like that. Because it seems like there's a difference in causality there. Yes, no, there's a big exception to this. The human soul is very troublesome. You know, it's a beautiful hylomorphic theory. And then you have this human form that you have to try to fit into it because it's immaterial, because we have intellects, we are spiritual, and so on. So it it happens both at at the beginning of life and at the end. We have an immortal soul where everything else, its form that it presently has, it goes back into the potentiality of a matter when it ceases to be, you know? But, okay, with respect to then this uh, specific question of human generation, the, for other creatures, other living things, uh, what the parents do is dispose the matter so that it is now, so that a new form can be educed from the potency of matter. The human form, being spiritual, can't be educed from the potency of matter. So where does it come from? In this case, you do need a divine act of creation of the soul for each individual human being at its conception. And to move from the two parent lizards to just another lizard, the child, the offspring lizard, is God still the non-unimical cause of that form of lizard? I think so, yes. Why are there lizards as such? Well, God is the ultimate exemplar cause, all that is exists in some way as an idea, a divine mind. But what Plato had is the world of forms, you know. Uh, Aquinas doesn't reject that entirely like Aristotle did, but sees that within the divine mind are these ideas of each thing. So why is there a species of lizards? Well, the exemplar cause of that is in the divine mind. So I see, yeah, ultimately God is the non-univocal cause in the generation of the lizard. Mm-hmm. One of the talks someone brought the God of Gaps and you see today mentioned you, you mentioned about someone trying to put the uh, you know, possibility of God acting in our world through the quantum physics, you know. And for me it's like actually question what's the usefulness of thinking in that way? Because you know it's another place to actually put the God in a gap. That gap in the future, and we see at the same time. I mean, there is an appeal to go into that so distant places and see the act God acting through those things which we can't very under can't very understand. And then 
<laughs> and then simply Jesus walked on earth 2,000 years ago as a human being and influenced world that way. So in a way, it's like, I, I think there's a many traps, you know, into going into that explanation how God inter interfered with the world when actually he was here as a human being, you know? Yeah. So like, I mean, do, do I need to put a quantum physics there to see God acting in the world? No, I don't have to because, I, yeah. you know, it, it's kind of like, what's the purpose of that? Yes, no, you wonder, you can see what people are doing like, in a project like that, but you ask, why are they doing that? You know, is there something contradictory about God acting in the world, you know, in the incarnation, say, another, no, a, a miraculous event, but there's God, the person of Jesus, walking in the world. There's no contradiction. You don't have to find a gap to put God in and so on. So the fact that you go looking for gaps, places where God could touch something or move something or do something without being seen, without interfering, not causing any disruption to the established law of time, well, it means that your, your conception of God is somehow out of whack, you know? So what you need is not to go look for better better gaps within the world where you can allow God to act, but to reconsider, what do I mean by God? What kind of cause am I thinking about? And it might be that you're mis you have a different or misconception of the nature of God. And if you correct that, then a lot of the other problems disappear. I'm wondering if you could say a little more about the uh, univocal, non-univocal causes, and whether we're, in what sense we're talking about formal causes or efficient causes. That, so, to go back to the example of two lizards with a genetic mutation, or two sets of genetic mutations <coughs> that ends up producing a snake, or something that's on the way to a snake, mm -hmm. um, and trying to figure out where is that new form coming from. Mm -hmm. um, is it, okay, so I think, I would certainly agree, yes, we can say in God's mind you have the exemplar causality of all things, the forms of all things that will ever exist. Uh, and so we don't um, just say that those, those, well, so there's that formal causality, but then in the order of the production of that by secondary causes in the world, mm -hmm. do you also need a non-univocal cause Y yes. to, bring about, to bring about that, and is that part of what we're talking about, where we're talking about uh, uh, whether we need God's intervention as a secondary cause, or something else to intervene as a secondary cause? Right. I mean, it's, it's weird that the, the, we become aware of the need to invoke the non-universal cause when two causes of the same type produce something like them, because then they produce something that has the same specific form they do, and they can't be the cause of that form as such. It doesn't, I mean, if they produce something unlike them, you know, somehow between their actions and some incidental features, gamma rays or whatever, uh, matter is exposed to a new form, a different form that is deduced from the focus of matter, so the snake is produced from the lizard. Well, then the, the parents are, are the cause, again, of the coming of that thing. But we don't need to allude immediately to this non-unitical cause to explain the um, instantiation of that form. I think that uh, it, it would still be true that uh, the, the, 
I don't think that creatures can cause substantial forms as such. No, they, what they do, and Aquinas talks about what they do, is we're the cause of the becoming of things. You know, so the coming into being, and we do that by disposing the matter. And what happens as soon as the matter is disposed, the form is deduced from the potency of matter. So without any kind of divine knowing intervention, action, etc., it's just the way nature works. The form is deduced from the potency of the matter. So if you're looking at for the cause, why the matter is disposed in that way, the form deduced from the potency of matter, you're off and running. You're no need to reduce it to invoke anything else. But if you come up with the question, why, why is there this type of creature? Why are there these kinds of forms? Then you need something beyond this. Not a cause of the same type, a mythical cause, but a non-mythical So can I just try to summarize what you said? Is it then the case that we would say, well, God is the cause of it, as the, the eternal exemplar of, of all of the different Nature's forms that you find, mm -hmm. substantial forms that you find in the world. But the active potency or the potency for those forms to really exist in the world was in a way given at God's creation of the world. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when the conditions for the matter being arranged in that way right. come about, then the forms exist. Right. And we don't need then to posit some, yeah. any, any further entrance of a cause besides. Mm -hmm. No, no, you don't. I mean, you don't include God or exclude God sort of thing, but it, it's matter itself, primary matter, has the potency to be any substance, you know? It's mere possibility of being something, any material thing. It's there within the possibility of primary matter. So all you need are causes to dispose the matter to that particular actuality, and that actuality is then deduced from, it comes forth from, simply the potency, the possibility of matter. It, it, it doesn't require any kind of divine uh, agent to implant that form, sort of thing, no. Could one more question later across there. Um, in the story of evolution, I think, there's a story about how you have organic forms, early stages developing. At an earlier stage, they're all blind. And at some point in this development, sight, the capacity for sight appears. So how do we distinguish between blind organic matter replicating blind organic matter and suddenly there's this blind organic matter somehow gives away? Is that that's a non-univocal? And if it is, how do you distinguish it? Well, yeah, I, I think you, you always have not just matter, you have substances, you have things. Which, and a thing is always of a particular type in virtue of its substantial form, and therefore, in virtue of the same form, it has certain properties and certain activities. So, very simple forms of life didn't have sight, okay? So, uh, but they, they were substantial form of primary matter, each of different types, amoeba or whatever. Then, evolution, and our understanding of evolution, of life, we don't know how to tell the story. We can look back and say this must have happened for the reasons that Nick uh, was mentioning yesterday. But uh, at some point, you know, whether it's a light-sensitive cell or something, uh, 
gradually, I mean, that occurs, and then that becomes an advantage in the survival of that thing, that organism, and therefore it's selected for. And over generations, it's by chance, enhanced, etc. Um, and you end up with the eyeballs and so on. So, uh, but it's always what what's generated is always the substance. It's not just more matter and now more matter is able to see. It's a particular thing that has a particular capacity. Can I follow up really quickly? Sure. In support of that, there are photosensitive molecules. And so you could say that the potentiality for matter to interact with light was always there. Hmm. And so sight is uh, just a more complex example of what was really always there as a potentiality of the cosmos. I think we better go ahead and conclude there. Let's uh, please thank Father John.